0: I'm Ryan Androssoff. Welcome to Let's Think Digital. How do we get stuff done? If there's a broader theme emerging for this season of the podcast, it's that. How do we get unstuck from the mud that we seem to be in and get on with actually realizing our digital ambitions in government? In episode 12, we spoke to Sean Boots about how being content with evolution isn't enough and how we have to start entertaining some more radical ideas on how to push government structures and systems out of their complacency. Last episode, we heard from Jennifer Polka about how we need to build state capacity to get us out of this crisis of implementation, that creating new policy isn't enough, and that we have to really reorient government towards delivery, so that governments can actually do the things that they say they're going to do. If you missed those episodes, go back and check them out. And make sure to follow Let's Think Digital on your favorite podcast app. And if you're watching this on YouTube, click those like and subscribe buttons below so that you're always notified when new episodes drop. This week, we're going to talk about another aspect of this same theme, that we have to think about the underlying infrastructure and the need to make upfront investments to identify and fix the deep structural problems in government that prevent us from achieving the ambitious vision of what a modern government should look like. It's the unsexy, behind-the-scenes things, the basic plumbing of government, if you will, that really holds things back. And joining me this week to talk about this and her incredible journey through multiple levels of government is Honey Dakinay. Honey is the Director General of Policy and Performance in the office of the Government of Canada's Chief Information Officer at Treasury Board Secretariat. She joined the federal government in 2019, taking on roles initially in the Canada School of Public Service and then Service Canada, and bringing with her her experience from serving in the province of Ontario, where she was one of the co-founders of the Ontario Digital Service. Honey's also a professor of practice at McMaster University, where she teaches about digital government in their Master of Public Policy in a Digital Society program. And in 2019, she was named one of A Politicals 100 most influential people in digital government. It's safe to say that Honey has seen a lot in her digital government journey and brings a unique perspective to the issues that we have been talking about on this podcast. We're really happy that she took the time to speak with us at our Forward 50 sound booth. Let's listen into the conversation. Honey, welcome to Let's Think Digital. Great to have you with us today.
1: Thanks for having me here.
0: So, um, we met years ago when you were in the Ontario government. You were there in the early days of the Ontario Digital Service being formed. That's right. We were getting the Canadian Digital Service stood up, and you've had, I think, an interesting career working in the provincial government. (laughs) You've now been in the federal government for the last few years, and you're also teaching at the Master University and trying to help the next generation of policy leaders come up. you know, I'm curious for you to maybe just kind of share a little bit about, you know, your your background and, and kind of what you've been seeing over the last 10 years or so as like the big trends in what we call digital government.
1: Where do I begin? I, um, so I'm a career public servant, or now it feels that way, and I also have been in the digital space probably for 10 to 12 years. And I mentioned that because it, probably half my career was technically either waiting for digital teams to exist or working in machinery or government in one form or another. And what I do notice more than ever is just the overwhelming urgency and just the deficit uh, that governments are sort of um, sort of letting happen. By not addressing some of the things that are basically broken, Um, digital or not happening, I think it's just a gap between policy, delivery and evaluation. Uh, Fundamentally, it's those gaps where um, all the cracks are really, really starting to show.
0: Yeah, and, and, you know, we're, we're here at the Forward 50 mm-hmm. conference in Ottawa recording this interview, mm-hmm. and I think there's been a theme of that coming up in a lot of the mm-hmm. conversations that have happened, right? And, yes. and you're giving a presentation here about yes. this very issue, right? Or, or, you know, and around how, I mean, if I can put it in my words, you know, there's been a sense of almost like the digital government movement getting stuck. Because mm-hmm. I, I think back to like, you know, seven, eight, ten years ago, there seemed to be all of this momentum around these mm-hmm. new digital government teams coming in you know, a lot of ambition about what could happen. Mm -hmm. And it feels like, you know, some of that has kind of like hit up against reality and we're maybe not where we want to be. I mean, curious if you kind of share that and your thoughts on maybe why that's been happening.
1: It was always a hard mission to begin with to undo centuries of work that's really, really calcified into the system. And it's a bit naive for us to think that... um, we could uh, cause change to occur just by showing a different way, very in a very small way. The truth is that the better for less narrative from 2010. Um, while it's very promising, um, hurt the digital teams first Hmm. in that there's the upfront investment that needed to happen with the teams so that they weren't set up to just be doing one prototype after another. And somehow the fireworks team was supposed to be able to translate that into larger platform or policy fixes. That moment seems to never arrive. Um, That was true. At the provinces and likely at the cities too. Mm-hmm. Um, what I've found at the federal government um I don't think there was even deep investment in basic technology systems.
0: Yeah, because I, I was interested to just ask you about what those first impressions were, right? You know, on, on that transition. Okay. Um, and, and, I mean, I guess maybe, you know, both in your transition, you know, coming into working on digital in Ontario and, mm-hmm. and now coming into the feds. So, it, it, I guess there's a mm-hmm. sense that, that, that there is some, like, leapfrogging that has to happen or, or, or you know, in, in order to try get us to where we need to be. Or sort of basic plumbing, maybe, is, is a yeah. better way of putting it.
1: Yes, So in Ontario, before the Ontario Digital Service existed, there was a team at um, essentially at the office of the CIO ten years before that that centralized like shared services. Um, So for my entire career in the Ontario public service, I had a single email that followed me from one department to the next. Mm -hmm. I never had to worry that my pay would get compromised every two weeks. And things that were just part of the water that yep. I, I just took for granted because yep. that was the experience. And by the time the Ontario Digital Service was created, there was also a um, like this was also built on top of the team that developed. Um, Ontario.ca, which was a single channel for um, the government of Ontario at the time um, on open source technology designed around content that people were searching for. Mm-hmm. And it was a, um, there was public appetite to um, make that difference and confidence internally that we, we can make this happen. Yeah. Um, there was also a recognition of the um, Capacity required at the line departments. There were also some IT failures in Ontario that um, involved um, auditor general reports. um, Mm -hmm. So one involving, um, I guess, case management systems and... um, was
0: it, was it SAMS was one of yes. them? The Social Assistance yes. Management right. System? Yeah.
1: And, um, and then the Child Protection Information Network. Like right. The case management is the same case management system.
0: Which are also glaring because they're dealing with people who are very vulnerable, okay. right?
1: Exactly. And um, and catastrophic consequences because of the things that went wrong, so missed welfare payments as well as um, people not um, ending up in their right foster homes or yep. um, ending up in places where they shouldn't be. and. Now, one unreported part about that that I l- love to talk about is, um, as a result of that, like that particular department now that mm-hmm. was responsible for it has invested significantly mm-hmm. in developing digital and data capacity mm-hmm. within the department, and so the Ministry of um, Children Community Social Services yep. has the most um, sophisticated digital and data analytics team that uh, in the government of Ontario right now. Oh, wow. And um, <laughs> it's not written about enough. And, yeah. Um, and I think that um, that should be written about more because it created an appetite for that change. So it could happen as a result of something really bad happening or it could also grow as, um, as the expectation evolves because at the end of the day too, um, I mean, another recurring theme of this conference um, is essentially a quote from Jen Palka, which is what government ultimately uh, needs to keep up with is not technology, but people and their changing expectations. And um, they're diminishing trust even in tech and other institutions. And so um, who else is left to care about them?
0: (laughs) And, you know and so this makes me wonder I mean this is, it was a really this is a very interesting you know example of uh, an agency of, you know, as you were mentioning in Ontario that went through a big crisis big failure as a result mm-hmm. it now has a leading practice mm-hmm. I mean we've seen this with like you know the healthcare.gov example that always gets talked about in the US which was the impetus for the US digital service and 18f to get created I mean do you think crisis is necessary like do we have to have a crisis to be able to to make progress in this digital modernization space?
1: Um, It never hurts, but it also, um, I don't think it needs to be that way. I guess if you care about the actual outcome, for people at the end of the day, you organize around it, that is probably still the most powerful thing that you can do, like no matter what's happening in government, regardless of any sort of, like whoever is um, on the political side, regardless of any stripe, like they would always care about what's the impact on people. Right. And I think they're able to ask about that in terms that aren't as flowery or abstract. One of the favorite stories I love to tell is in Ontario, when we first published the Ontario Digital Standard, mm-hmm. one of the instincts, of course, is to let's require that out of like the Treasury Board submission, out of a cabinet policy document. Um, at the time, the Ontario Digital Service was at uh, the cabinet office. Yep. And so, oh yeah, we could totally just insert a question in a template and around um, and meanwhile I'm going wait do they even know what we're talking about yep. and so let's take our medicine let's do some user research and actually understand what policy advisors think about and then let's ask what ministers think about just so that you know we can compare and contrast and so um, we asked a public policy advisors, and everybody was shepherding submissions to cabinet to tell us, what do you think is the most important part of a uh, cabinet submission? So um, the policy advisors said, um, I need to worry about the legislative impact, the financial impact, how we're going to operationalize this, communication stakeholder (laughs) impact, um, textbook, public policy. They've covered all the angles. Mm Yes. We asked the ministers, and they essentially just had the one answer: What's the impact on people? Yep. And how do I explain it to somebody who's not in government? If somebody was asking me that, what does this mean for me?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and I'm stunned that, of course, ne- there was no overlap between the two answers, which I know in my heart of hearts is not true. Um, truth of the matter is that public servants come in thinking they make, they're going to make a difference. But the day job is, I'm going to do my part in the machine. And somehow the public good gets abstracted so much. Right. And I think that's probably what we need to undo a little.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, two Mm -hmm. things is one that gets more challenging at the higher level of government you get, right? Mm -hmm. You know, like at the municipal level, I think people sometimes just get a little bit more focused on what Mm -hmm. people need because of the nature of the work they're doing is much closer to citizens. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, you get the provincial government, you're one level above that. Federal government, you're even more abstracted in most cases, which I think, can be really challenging around it. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's really interesting, this dichotomy between politicians and the public servants, right? Because I think, you know, sometimes in my mind, we don't actually think about the political dimension of this enough. Mm-hmm. And and actually, like, my sense is, like, most politicians are actually very attuned to that user-centricity, because mm-hmm. of the nature of their role. They have to directly mm-hmm. interface with the public all the time. Right,
1: right. Um, I want to challenge the idea that the federal mandate is abstract. Please. It's just so easy to hide behind that as a reason to well it's not really our responsibility because the thing is the issues that we are faced with now do not have borders like climate change is going to hit us and it's not going to be one order of government's problem and it's going to affect us in very tangible ways um i think that um us not having and, and us as citizens us as having family members or people in society, um, I think that's a problem across orders of government. And the public doesn't care which order government is responsible for what. But somehow, the orders of government need to get over themselves (laughs) a little. For lack of a better or more elegant way of saying it, yeah, um, it's all hands on deck. Yeah. And um, the truth is, people's needs, um, in some cases, transcend sort of um, the borders of our organization.
0: Yeah. It's, it's a great point, honey. And I, and I think mm-hmm. you're right that, I mean, we're dealing with such complex, mm-hmm. like, cross-jurisdictional issues these days mm-hmm. that, yeah, from a citizen perspective, they don't care. Mm-hmm. You know, and a lot of the, the kind of federal system we've set up in Canada, that vision of powers and responsibilities. <laughs> I mean, to be frank, this was done, you know, over a century and a half ago mm-hmm. in a very different world. For sure. And it's, it's. I mean, I always kind of feel we have these very, like, creaky systems that were set up hundreds of years ago under very different assumptions. Yes. And it's kind of like we're trying to do the best we can with what we've got. But, mm-hmm. like, clearly if we had a whiteboard, we would not design government to look like it does today, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Definitely. Yeah. Um, no. I wouldn't know how I would design it like I don't <laughs> I don't know what that would look like to start over. Yeah. I think that the closest I would get is what do we need to do? And I think that uh, the public service side it's always about what do we do now and like in the time we have and yep. always sort of having that imagination around like our, and have that interesting relationship with time too. Mhm. Um which I think um I feel like the public service now has such a short-term horizon when they think about their future. Um, or they've stopped becoming, or somehow, I don't hear it so much anymore, like this whole stewardship of the longer term or hmm. passing this on to the next generation and preparing them or trying to worry about how this will shape um, like the future. Yeah. Um, to come for better or worse, and how to um, actually worry about the various trade offs because we're always in the trade offs business like who's going to win or lose, and yep. how do we ameliorate some things for people who might end up on the losing side? Um, I mean. Not at the same scale, but um, probably in comparison today at, in terms of the speed at which things are changing. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about um, when the rail car was introduced and the motor vehicles were introduced. I think about Ontario, for example, and I forget if it was 1915 or 1920, but mm-hmm. um, there, anyhow, the Department of um, Transportation was created and their mandate was to um, like rethink the Province as connected by a series of highways, and I'm pretty sure at the on a parallel slide, like the government of Canada was also thinking about what does that mean for um, like to connect like again via national railway system, right? Like like how do we connect across and worry about who's going to get excluded based on where we pick these routes? And, yep, um, I think that's always um, hmm. uh, uh, that. Uh, I guess that mandate to uh, not leave anybody behind Behind. is always uh, an ever-present dilemma.
0: Yeah, you know, it's, I've never thought before about that particular kind of jump from like rail, to, I mean, rail was so foundational to mm-hmm. the beginning of this country. Mm-hmm. That jump to roads must have been a dramatic yes. difference, mm-hmm. right?
1: Exactly.
0: Because even most of the major cities in Canada, they, their, their creation was driven by mm-hmm. the railroad. Exactly. Right? And and we've now been living through these last two decades, this kind of next jump on connection where it's mm-hmm. kind of divorced from geography in a sense. Exactly. Um, but it has some pretty profound implications around that. Yeah, and and I, and, I, and I love this notion of stewardship. I, I think this notion of time horizon that you were talking about, you know, the, the, that we tend to get increasingly very caught in these short cycles, mm-hmm. which you could argue, I think, is in part because of like the media landscape we're in, the social media world we're in, all those pressures, and being able to think about, like, what do those next generations look like? How do we leave a lasting legacy? Mm-hmm. So I'm interested to ask you, because some of the work you're doing is actually trying to help shape that next generation in, in the teaching work that you're doing with McMaster uh, in their Masters of Public policy program. Um, I'm curious to kind of get, you know, your impression, because you're working with students who are, you know, Mm -hmm. coming into their career, are, you know, many of them, I suspect, looking to come into government to have an impact. Mm -hmm. What is their viewpoint on on this? Are they optimistic? Are they worried about the future? What's your sense of kind of what that next generation of policy and and government and service leaders look like?
1: Mm -hmm. What I love about students in general, is that um, they are bold enough to ask more of government and more of the institutions in society. One thing I need to say about this program is that um, it's quite different from the other uh, public policy public admin programs in that it's fashioned as um, a master's degree in public policy in a digital society. And then the course I'm co-teaching is like the only government related one. And so I think the hope is that wherever they end up, um, whether in government or in a think tank or in the private sector, they are thinking about these things at scale, because I also think that um, that government is one actor. um, There are many others that need to be worried about these issues and working together. Um, I know, um, so I think uh, Jake... um, and yes, Bryce are
0: on. J- Jacob and Bryce are both, uh, they do policy analyst works with our team. Mm-hmm. They, they have been on the podcast uh, in last season because we did a, we did some work around <laughs> artificial intelligence in the public sector. There you go. Both graduates of that program. That's right. <laughs> and both great role models for, I think, you know as two, two young yeah, right. guys coming out who <laughs> wanted to have an impact on public policy, but to your point, mm-hmm. didn't necessarily want to become public servants right yes. away, right? but still felt that they could contribute to public policy issues. Yeah in a non-direct way.
1: So there's one feature of this program that's I find kind of interesting um, in that everybody wants to work on public policy. Nobody wants to work on public admin. Hmm. And that is also a troubling trend, to be honest. And I mean, that was true even when I was in Ontario. Yep. Like in the government of Ontario, if you work in corporate policy, it's slow motion career death yep. because of that's like the boring IT rules or the boring HR rules or the procurement rules. But we're in an age where things that are broken internally yeah. are gonna manifest in devastating ways yes. for people um, on the outside. And I think that um, taking an interest in public admin um, and actually fixing those things at their core, yeah. those are structural problems Yes, n- need to. Um, that's um, one big thing that we need to actually really address
0: um. yeah and and I don't know if that's new because I mean mm-hmm. maybe I'm just a weirdo. I probably am, yeah. but like back when I it's was doing no, because when I was doing my public policy degree, I did my undergraduate degree at Carleton University in their <laughs> Bachelor of Public Affairs and Policy Management program, mm-hmm. and so there was, if I remember right, six or seven different specializations, mm-hmm. and like everybody wanted to do international affairs, you know, or there was ones around kind of like social policy or other like policy yes. areas, but then there was public administration <laughs> as like a core one, yes. and I I wanted to do that because I was super excited about Mm -hmm. like the deep structural stuff but there was like four of us out of a class of 60 who picked that specialization Mm -hmm. and and, and to your point everybody wanted to get really driven by the bigger kind of social issues Mm -hmm. but to me and I I think you're kind of in the same boat like actually those plumbing issues to me are so interesting because if you don't get that right kind of none of the other stuff matters in the end
1: exactly um and the um I guess the unfortunate part, to be honest, is that's where you could apply so much creativity. I mean, that's where all the hacks happen. That's where all the structural changes can yep. happen, and we introduce interruptions, or you can make things accelerate or actually slow things down, um, at, like in this space in particular. And it's so untapped. And I think that um, to put creative energy around it is actually like a a good, um, that's where the change can happen. Yep. And I still see that potential. Yep. um, And it's still untapped, even by our own community. Like.
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, you're a Treasury Board Secretariat now, federally. I spent, you know, seven or eight years, you know, of my career at Treasury Board Secretariat. <laughs> and I always saw it actually, I mean, a lot of people dread it, right? They're like, I would never want to work at TBS. I don't want to be the central agency. But I actually think that, to your point, it's a huge platform <laughs> to actually impact change across the system. <laughs> and I, you know, we, I, I mean, to kind of what you're saying, we've got to find a way to make public administration sexy again, you know? And because I think, you know, that in a big hierarchical system, that's in my mind, that's where some of the levers are to actually make some of these things happen throughout the system.
1: Exactly. I think Treasury Board itself, that's where you can make things possible and then you can create community around it. Um, You normalize the things that aren't kind of um, that would seem fringe or um, just sort of a flash in the pan thing and you could actually make um, a lot of things mainstream Mm -hmm. and then um, the last bit around that is you could change the incentives and then finally hopefully require it yes Um, I guess one fault is that everybody kind of starts with and then stops at the require it playbook and then
0: (laughs) I do I do think that's a real challenge right is like and this is not just federal government I think a lot it's of government a lot of governments they kind of you know the the, the central mm-hmm. machinery often views its job as just kind of creating the policy document putting it up on the website mm-hmm. and the real magic is that follow-up right yeah. on how do you actually educate people I, I love that term of normalize it mm-hmm. right normalize these new behaviors and, and actually incentivize them to, to move around that mm-hmm. Um you know, I'm the, the one other thing I wanted to ask you about, and I, and I think kind of linked to this is, is this notion of kind of ambition. Because mm-hmm. a lot of this change making, like on a personal level, requires people to not just have ambition, but to sustain ambition over time. Mm-hmm. And you've written about this, I've seen you talk about this before, of just like sometimes how difficult it is when you're in these big machines to kind of sustain that ambition over time. I mean, what's your what's your advice for people, you know, who might be listening? That that are like in the trenches right now. They want government to, to to work more effectively but it's tough for them to see the end in sight.
1: Daphne Nostrom at the conference yesterday um, said it much better than I did in that this is a multi-generational um, kind of investment and you do your part while you're here. Um, I subscribe to the personnel as policy um, that sort of um, like I find and create and foster leaders where I can and amplify their work and I do believe that um, it takes having as many allies as possible, creating communities uh, and honestly um, lifting others while you're here Yeah, and uh, that's how I know that even like Like, I don't have any, I don't pin any of those hopes, sort of, okay, I'm going to be the one that will kind of drive through this thing with my sledgehammer and be superhero style, sort of, kind of, saving the day for government. And, um, yeah, like, honestly, like, uh, my ambition for government, I'd like to think that my ambition for government working better for people is that, um, honestly, like, Government exists for people and for a better society for all. And so I think that how do we set up this institution to be able to make those choices um, very wisely in an equitable way and in a way that actually benefits everybody? Yeah. Mm
0: Yeah, and and I and I think it's an important leadership lesson, right, around that notion of how do you how do you be a leader in a selfless way? Mm-hmm. Because I think we've got a lot of traditional leadership paradigms that mm-hmm. can be very kind of like strong leader driven, mm-hmm. and we see that sometimes in government, right? They, like to me, it's actually surprising how much a single senior leader mm-hmm. can, for good or for bad, shape the organization. Mm-hmm. But I worry that like, the problem with that is as soon as that person leaves, even if they're doing great stuff. Mm-hmm. It's it all kind of disappears with them, right? And I, I forget, I think it might have been Woodrow Wilson who said that, like, you can do anything mm-hmm. as long as you don't want to take credit for it. Uh, and, yeah, at, that's probably true. And I think there's some yeah, truth to that. Exactly. But, like, but but you know, I, I think being able to kind of, it's a different style of leadership than I think mm-hmm. perhaps that we're used to. And, and you know, I, I think the ability to foster that is one of the real challenges.
1: It's hard because, um, like, we're all raised in a diet of gold stars like, and um, that's the other Um like almost uh, well the majority of public servants come in essentially with graduate degrees and um, There is that notion of you're competing, you're getting straight A's at school, you're the one who just followed all the instructions. (laughs) And it's very oriented around individual achievement and beating everybody. When you're supposed to um, be thinking about this in terms of how do we work together, which one will win, uh, will actually, has the best chance, which idea has the best chance of having the greatest outcome for people the mm-hmm. best outcome for people rather than um and or maybe what about your some one person's idea combined with this other person's idea can actually come up with something even better like that integrative yep. kind of approach yep. is not yet normalized and i think that that's probably what and it's new for people like it's it takes some getting used to mm-hmm. um
0: and 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 it takes, you know, as as we've talked about in the past, like mm-hmm. shifting the incentives and the culture of the organization to to reward that and to exactly. recognize it. Mm-hmm. And it's a process. Yeah. And and I'm appreciative of the work that you do to help move that process along. So, um, <laughs>
1: A lot of us, it's not.
0: <laughs> no, it's, it's. I mean, I think events like this are always encouraging to kind of reconnect with that community of people who are, are kind of pushing for this and agitating for it in, in different ways. Um, but appreciate your leadership on this. And I think it's been, you know, wonderful to kind of see you kind of, you know, do this work in Ontario, bring some of that perspective and wisdom to the federal government and, uh, and do work with, with kind of the next generation coming in. So, so thank you, honey, for all your work in this area. Thank you. (laughs) Great to have you on the podcast and look forward to staying in touch.
1: Okay. Me too. Thanks.
0: (laughs) I know compared to the flashy tech that's out there, like artificial intelligence or the metaverse, the administration of government may seem a little dry, but believe me, Time and time again, I have seen great ideas to modernize government fail because we haven't made the necessary investment in that basic plumbing that makes the machine work. So thanks to Honey for joining us on the podcast to talk about that and also to talk about her work teaching the next generation of leaders. As Honey said, these investments are sometimes multi-generational and we have to think long-term. Small actions today can have Big impacts in the future. And that's the show for this week. Tell us what you think. How are you finding these live on site interviews at Forward 50? If you're watching on YouTube, tell us in the comments below. Email us at podcast at thinkdigital.ca or use the hashtag Let's Think Digital on social media. And while you're at it, make sure to like and subscribe. If you're listening to us on your favorite podcast app and you like this episode, be sure to give us a five-star review afterwards. And remember to go to letsthinkdigital.ca and sign up for our newsletter and to catch up on past episodes of the podcast. Today's episode of Let's Think Digital was produced by myself, Wayne Chu, and Aislinn Bourne. Thanks so much for listening, and let's keep thinking digital.